some of us aching, unable to move due to back pain, some of us rejoicing as we look forward to a wedding just days away, others anxious as we think about what will the future hold for us. And all of us come as we just sang, finding hope in the cross. Lord, may that be our hope, our confidence today. Lord, it's not our plans, it's not our medical procedures, it's not our bank account that will get us through, it is you. So we turn to you, asking that you would be our strong rock and tower in these times. Lord, even now, would you speak through your word, and may we find hope in you. In your son's name we pray, amen. We're continuing in Luke's gospel, and we're in Luke chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 40. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. God's word says, The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as, deliver, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children. Sorry, my Bible accidentally muted the screen. Technological difficulties here. The man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels, angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Last week, I posed the question, if you had one week left to live, what would you do? Many of us would travel to exotic places or eat fancy foods or engage in exhilarating experiences and spend as much time as possible with those that we love. We would all act distinctly. We'd act differently. We'd act purposefully because we know our time is short. And we said that beginning in Luke 19, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, he knew 
He had one week left before he was betrayed, condemned, and crucified. However, he didn't use that week to go eat a lot of fancy meals. He didn't use that week to go have great experiences or be with his blood family. He spent most of his time teaching and correcting people. And while he taught, the religious leaders come and they try and trip him up. They keep approaching him with questions to trap him. They hope either they'll get him to say something that then the Roman rulers will arrest him, or he'll say something that will make the people no longer want to listen to him. Last week, they brought one question. We looked at that, and here, there's, this week, there's two more. But each time, Jesus responds, corrects them, and then, in some levels, challenges them. He teaches them. He gives them a hope for change. And this morning, we're going to see that Jesus teaches two important truths. First, he shows us what the greatest allegiance of our life should be. The greatest allegiance in verses 19 through 26. And then in verses 27 through 40, we see that Jesus shows us where our hope, where our greatest hope can be found. Well, the context here is Jesus just gave this parable of the vineyard where he told that Israel is like a vineyard and God had planted it and he'd left the religious leaders to care for it, but they kept attacking the servants. He sent the prophets and then ultimately they killed the son of the vineyard owner. And the religious leaders realized Jesus was telling this about them. So we saw in verse 19 that they wanted to lay hands on him, but they couldn't because of the people. In fact, they now resort, we see in verse 20, to sending spies, people who come and act like they want to know what Jesus is saying, but they're really hypocrites. Now, if you translated verse 20 literally, it would say they pretended to be righteous. Now, I think sincere catches the idea as well, but I think as well the literal word righteous is showing kind of Luke's critique of the religious leaders throughout the gospel, that they have this appearance that everything is right when their hearts are far from God. We saw this specifically in Luke 18, 9, where Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to the temple. And he says he told this parable because some suppose that they are righteous in and of themselves. And that's the issue here. These religious leaders, these spies, are not coming because they're humble and they desperately need to hear from God. They're coming to challenge. They're coming to get Jesus trapped. They come to capture Jesus, not listen to him. And so in this story, in verse 21, they come and they start to flatter him. You know what flattery is. It's when you say something to someone's face that you never say behind their back. You're talking to your friend and bemoaning the horrible time you had last night until that person walks in. You go, oh, I had a great time last night. Because you want them to like you. So you say something to them that you don't actually believe. And that's what they're saying. And they say three things. Oh, Jesus, you teach the way that's right. You teach what's straight. You're the type of person who would never flatter anyone like they're doing, never show partiality. And it's very ironic because they, we just saw in the stories before this, wouldn't say where John the Baptist's authority came from because they did show partiality. They did care what people thought. And third, they end by saying, well, Jesus, you teach the way of God. Now, the problem is not what they say. Actually, all three of those things are wonderfully true. Jesus does teach what is right. He doesn't care about who's in front of him, and he does show us God's way. The problem is they don't actually believe this. If they did, they would be coming to listen to Jesus, not trap him. They would be submitting to him, not trying to destroy him. And after saying this, they then ask their question. 
whether they should give Caesar taxes or not. Now, the tax in question is not the general tax that the Jewish tax collectors collected and then sent on to Rome. This was the poll tax that went directly to Caesar. And so you could kind of see the dilemma already. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax, well, then a lot of the Jewish people will hate him. We don't want to support Rome. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, then they're going to go tell the governor, and the governor will arrest him for sedition, for trying to get the people to not pay their taxes. But Jesus, he sees through their craftiness. So he asks for a coin, the denarius, a day's wage that on a side has Caesar's picture and below it the inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. Well, Jesus knew the coin said this. He wasn't looking for information. He was leading them to a conclusion. And so when he brings the coin, when they bring him a coin, he asks who's the inscription and they say, And then he says, give what is of Caesar to Caesar. You see, what Jesus is wanting to show them is, look, in your everyday life, you're submitting to Caesar. Every day you use these coins and you're just fine to do it. You just don't want to admit that he's ruling over your life. And hey, if it's of Caesar, you can give it to him. You're not saying he's the ruler of your life. Now, the word give is a word that often implies a debt, that you owe someone something. Well, the Apostle Paul picks up on this. And in Romans 13, 7, he writes, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What Paul and Jesus are saying is we have an obligation way greater than just taxes. And Jesus will continue on the same because he's saying, look, you owe something to Caesar. He's your government your local on earth government but then he expands to universal government because he says give what is of god to god you see what jesus is doing is he's using this idea of an image and he's making a comparison and he's calling them to what should be their greatest allegiance he's saying look caesar's image is on the coin and that image means there's an obligation that they should give allegiance and honor. But there's a much greater allegiance. It's because you're an image. You're in the image of God. Jesus is alluding to something that all of the religious leaders would have instinctively understood. Jesus is alluding back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this morning, we can't dive into all the meanings of what it means that we're made in God's image. But one idea, the central idea that Jesus is tying to here is that the image represents authority. A similar idea today may not be an image because most of us in the world don't live under a dictator. We don't live under someone who rules for life. We live under some kind of representative democracy and so a helpful similar idea is a flag wherever the flag flies that shows the country is in charge and that's why we might imagine marines charging up iwo jima putting up the flag or a flag being planted on the moon because it shows authority even what do we pledge to we pledge allegiance to the flag it's showing That is our allegiance. It's representing it. 
Now, in countries today that still do have kings or queens or rulers for life, they still print on their coins their image. They still have statues put up around the country, and that's when the people revolt. What's the first thing they do? They tear down those statues. They say, we are not under that authority, so we're not going to allow that image to stay there. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, the image of Caesar on the coin, that means you owe Caesar something. But you, the image of God, mean you owe God something. You owe God your life. And this is where the comparison with Caesar gives way to contrast with Caesar. Because Caesar, or any earthly ruler, can only demand so much allegiance. Thus, whether it's the midwives in Egypt, or Daniel and his friends in Babylon, or the apostles in the Roman government, there are times when every one of them in their actions or words say something like, we must obey God, rather than men. Our allegiance to earthly authorities only goes so high, but our allegiance to God is total. God's authority has no limit. That's why Jesus said, or affirmed in Luke 27, 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. There's no limit. There's no caveat except, well, in this situation, you can actually obey someone else, even yourself. Thus, Jesus has not only answered their question, but he's also gently challenged them. He's basically saying, rather than coming to God's representative to trip him up, you should be submitting. Your whole life should be in allegiance to him. And so we see in verse 26 that the questioners are left dumbfounded. They're silent. Their perfect question, the one that Jesus will never be able to answer, has left them silent and challenged. I think it's important to notice something here. Jesus answered in a way that was not harsh or condescending. As you know, it's quite popular to not only disagree with people, not only to disagree with them, but to consider them and their arguments completely idiotic. Thus, you can go online and you can see something like that. This, insert famous politician of the other party. Your politician says this and they're left speechless. They can't even answer. They're so dumb. Left speechless. You know, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not trying to make them bad. He's trying to lead them to repentance. He's modeling what Luke will later command in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Thus, the snide, the snarky tweets, the online comments, they may be fun, and it may give us an internal sense of vindication. Boy, I'm glad we're not dumb like those people. And yet they're dishonoring to God. Like Jesus, we should correct, but we should do it gently. We should be firm, but we shouldn't belittle. You know, our opponents should feel that we have completely understood their argument and disagreed with it. Not caricature their argument, mocked it, and moved on. But Jesus is giving us here more than just a good example of how to disagree with people. He's calling us to total allegiance to God. And so we have to ask, does your life show this total allegiance? Is God the driving force for your decisions? Decisions of 
career, decisions of what I'm going to watch, decisions of what I'm going to laugh at, decisions of every single aspect of your life. The sad reality is that in our country, in Western culture, for many, God is not overtly hated in a way that you could see. Rather, God is just irrelevant. He just doesn't come up in any of their thoughts. Life is just to be lived. And yet that's the exact opposite of what it should be. God should be weighing in on every decision we make. As God's image, everything you do should be a picture of God and how he would act. Thus, if someone wanted to know, how would God be a mother? Moms, you should be able to say, come watch me. And you could see how God would handle the daily grind of parenting. If God was a flight instructor, what would he look like? Well, come look at me and see how I correct and teach. I'll show you what God is like as a flight instructor. If God was a neighbor, what would he look like? Well, come look at me and how I treat my neighbors. Because we are God's image. We're showing the world around us what God is like. Now, the good news of Christianity is not, well, if you fully live like God, then God will bless you. He'll save you. He'll let you be with him. The good news is, though we've given an inaccurate picture of God, though we failed as fathers or mothers or flight instructors or neighbors, God sent his son to be the perfect image. That's why Hebrews 1.13 declares that Jesus is the exact imprint, using this nature of a coin being stamped of the father. Jesus fully represented God for us. And now he's making us into new images. We're being transformed day by day into his image. The same idea is here. Thus, though we're broken, there's still hope. And Jesus is going to show us that next. But before we turn there, I think there's two other important implications we need to draw from this passage. And the first is that Jesus is saying that we should give taxes to government. And realize this is not just any government. This is the government that in one week is going to put him to death. This is government that has evil rulers over Judea and enforces evil laws. In other words, Jesus' command to pay taxes is based on their position of authority, not their proper application of it. We can't skirt Jesus' command and say, well, I'll pay taxes for people who are moral, who make moral laws, but if they're going to do immoral things, I'm not paying my taxes for that. Now, yes, in a representative government, we should vote for and try to set up rulers and rules that do honor God. But that does not make us free to not pay our taxes if unjust, evil rulers and rules are in place. Second, I think there's a very important implication for what's going on right now in our country. You know, some churches, some Christians have claimed we are being told by the state that we have to disobey God if we can't meet together. Now, to be clear, I, I'm not talking about the legality in the U.S. system with the constitutional government, all these rights. I'm not a legal expert. Speaking more broadly about whether it would ever be fine for a government to tell Christians for a time because of a certain circumstance you can't meet. Well, we should clearly say we must always obey God rather than man. However, we also noted that God has given a certain level of authority to some men and women over our lives. So let me give another historical example and then apply it to today. In July 1939, the British government passed out public information leaflet number two. 
Sadly, we don't have public information leaflets anymore. They're a lot cooler than the things we get. But nonetheless, this public information leaflet was basically instructing the people of England on how to have a blackout. That, hey, the bombers from Germany are going to be coming in a couple months, or we don't know when, so what do we need to do? We need to turn as many lights out as possible so they don't know where the cities are. Now, I do not have a clear example, but I, am, I think we can all readily assume that some churches had to end their Sunday night services. That they had to go, well, you know what, without lights, it's kind of hard to meet. So were they having to then disobey God by not meeting? Well, no, it was a unique circumstance in which the government was not just telling churches, they were telling all citizens, for the sake of this unique time we need to save life, need to turn out our lights. Now, we could all sit here and quibble, or argue quite a bit, about the effectiveness or the rules that our government has put in place to deal with COVID. I'm not trying to answer those, but what I am trying to say is, if a government is giving rules for all that are something that is affecting everyone, it's not a Daniel-like moment where we must stand on our principles and show up to church. It's a moment where we should submit to our governing authorities. And thus, for churches to continue to meet in the light of clear rules, and I, we could put all kinds of caveats on this, of is it a rule or a guideline, but if it's a clear rule for everyone, Christians are not honoring God. I would argue they're disobeying God to continue to meet. There is a time where honoring God means honoring that authority over us. And we could spend a lot more time talking about it, but these things that Jesus are ta- saying have clear applications even today. And yet Jesus is showing us another great thing. He's showing us where our hope can reside, even in the midst of pandemics or crisis. And we see that next in verses 27 through 40. Jesus shows us where our greatest hope can lie. Because we see in verse 27 that some Sadducees, they come, and Luke tells us the Sadducees were a group of people who didn't believe in the resurrection. We also know from history that they rejected the oral authority of the Jewish scribes. They didn't believe that was accurate. And they mainly honored the first five books of the Old Testament. As well, they denied the existence of angels. They were generally a wealthy class, and so they wanted to keep the situation with Rome status quo. We don't want it to change because, hey, if it changes, we might lose some of our wealth, some authority. And their lack of belief in the resurrection shows the deceptive nature of their question here. In this case, their question is only something to trap Jesus, not learn from him. It's one of those questions that you kind of say and you laugh because you think, pfft. This shows how dumb they are. For example, it might be like, if God exists and is omnipotent, can he make a rock so big that he can't move it? <laughs> oh, gotcha. Oh, they're so dumb to believe in God. Now, the vast majority of people who ask such questions are not then turned into believers if you answer their questions because they're not asking in legitimacy. They're just asking to mock, to trap. And then we could answer this question. One, it's fallacy of terms. Because God's omnipotence doesn't mean that he can do anything. In fact, the Bible even says God cannot lie. When we're talking about God's omnipotence, we're talking about his power. What limit is there to it? It's more accurate to say that God can do all his holy will. It doesn't mean God can do 
logical contradictions like make a square circle or make a headless two-headed monster. That's nonsense. It has nothing to do with God's omnipotence. Also, the question is ridiculous in regards to logic. There's a great website online. I don't know if you ever used it, but gotquestions.com. They have a lot of answers for uh, questions in life, answered from a Christian perspective. And they just point out, look, a rock, what is a rock? It's a finite object. If an infinite power is unable to lift it, then that means the rock has to be infinite. But then that's a contradiction. You can't have a finite, infinite rock. And so we can answer the silly question in terms of logic and terms, except I'm sure no one who asks that is then going to go, well, how do I accept Christ as my Savior? The question is not given to elicit knowledge the question is given to mock and that's what's going on here they raise these questions of saying well look moses told this command that if a man gets married and then he dies and he has no children he has to marry another his brother has to marry and then they go through the other seven no no, no we have to again kind of pause because for many whoa hold on marriage is based on your brother i thought marriage was about romance marriage is about personal fulfillment And yet, where do we get those ideas that marriage is primarily about romance? That marriage is primarily about my personal fulfillment? You know, partially we believe this because we live in an extremely individualistic society. It's my personal romance. It's my personal fulfillment that matter. However, could it be that like we owe Caesar, like we owe God, maybe there's something we even owe our family and who we marry? You know, could it be that We have become too individualistic. Joseph Hellerman has a really fascinating book, and in it he discusses the way that individuals and how groups and people who are individually minded as a society and societies that are culturally minded, group minded, think differently. The individualistic minded culture thinks like this. Each individual has a set of characteristics, distinctive attributes. Moreover, people want to be different from other individuals in important ways. However, in contrast, group-minded cultures think people aren't unique. Groups are unique. Neither do people want to be distinctive. Thus, when asked to choose from a group of several yellow pencils and one unique green pencil, well, you can guess the result, 77% of Americans pick the green pencil. Ah, I want the unique one. And only 31% of Asians. Uh, More group-minded culture, I want to be like everyone else. The more individualistic-minded, I want to be unique. Now, notice it wasn't 100% either way. And you might even be thinking about, oh, my gosh, this is so ridiculous. Of course, we're all individuals. How can you even reject that? We're all special snowflakes. Come on. We're all unique. And there is an element of truth that every single person does have some uniqueness. However, we can get so focused on our uniqueness as an individual that we deny the importance and distinctions we have as groups. Hellman also discusses the differences in goals for individuals, individualistic or group cultures. The individualistic culture thinks people are oriented toward personal goals of success and achievement. They find that relationships and group memberships sometimes get in the way of attaining the goal. However, in contrast, group-oriented culture thinks relationships and group membership take priority over personal goals. Goals are not personal to begin with. Success and achievement are measured in terms of how much an individual contributes to the group. Now, my point in bringing all of this up 
is not to argue that all group thinking is correct or all individualistic thinking is right or wrong. We'd have to take every scenario and then line it up to what our ultimate allegiance should be. God. What does he say? Because there are times we should be more individualistic and there are times we should be more group-minded. My point in all this is to say that we often take our Western individualistic assumptions and then overlay those on things like marriage. And then you can go, that's wrong. All arranged marriages, sinful. All thoughts of marriage having something besides your personal happiness, immoral. We need to rid the world of these horrible things. And yet, not everyone thinks like that. And we aren't exactly right. It wasn't even that long ago that our society was more group-minded. What did JFK say? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And that resonated with people because, oh yes, we should think first of the group. It's not just about me. And so our, the main point is our way of conceiving of marriage is not the moral one and all everything else immoral. You may be familiar with Ravi Zacharias. Sadly, he is terminal cancer, but he gave a great message on marriage entitled, I, Isaac, take thee, Rebecca. And in this, he tells of his brother who was in an arranged marriage. And Ravi was getting a little concerned about this. And so the day his brother was about to go off and fly from Toronto to Bombay, he stopped him. He said, look, I, I just want to ask you a question. I'm not condemning what you're doing, but I just want to ask you a question. What are you going to do if when you land in Bombay, you walk to the end of the terminal and you see this girl with a garland and you go, oh boy, I sure hope that's not her. And his brother looked at him and he said, you got any more questions? He said, no. He said, well, write this down. Don't forget it. Love is as much a matter of the will as it is of the emotions. If you will to love someone, you can what did he get? He said, love is as much. And I didn't say love is only a matter of the will. I have a marriage. We will love each other. He says, as much. We need both emotions and will. And if you will to love someone, you can. Your marriage and love are not primarily, not saying they're not about it, but they're not primarily about personal fulfillment and romance. And Jesus, he's showing us these things, even by how he responds to their questions. Because here we have this scenario. Here's this Seven brothers, they've all died. And here's this woman. She didn't have any children, and then she dies. So what's going to happen in the resurrection? Whose wife will she be? And you can kind of see them all chuckling, giving them elbow bumps and, huh, got him. He's stuck. And Jesus, though, he wants them to realize they have two assumptions that can't be sustained. First, they're assuming that resurrected life is going to be exactly like this life. Second, they're assuming that marriage here will be tied to marriage there. And so Jesus replies in verse 40, 34. He says, look, people in this age marry, they're going to be given in marriage. Yet he then adds to the ones who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, they aren't going to marry or be given in marriage. The Sadducees wrongly assumed life would be exactly like it is now. Now we should say there will be similarities because Jesus in his resurrected body, he ate. He drank. He talked with people. Revelation 20, talking about heaven, describes work will do, cities. And so heaven, the age to come, won't be exactly the same, and it won't be completely different. However, it'll be radically better. We'll never have to say goodbye due to cancer. 
We'll never be stuck in homes due to viruses. We'll never be anxious for anything because life will be infinitely perfect. And they also wrongly assume that marriage here will be tied to marriage there. Now, marriage here on earth can be one of the greatest joys and delights. Spending your days and time with someone you've covenanted with can bring such joy, delight, such peace and stability to life. Thus, after years of marriage, when one of the spouses die, it can leave almost a shattered life. It can leave people numb, shocked. They almost don't know what to do. And yet Jesus is showing us that though every marriage on earth has the potential for overflowing joy or sorrow, every marriage is also momentary. Our marriage vows are correct. We're married until death do us part. It is not for eternity. Now, for those with great marriages or having lost a cherished spouse, this could lead us to despair if we didn't realize that Jesus had something much better in store for us. Recently, Keith and I were interacting about some of these things, and he gave this illustration that I thought was rather apt. When you're a child, you play Candyland, and you look forward to it. Ah, can't wait to play Candyland. When you become adult, you play when your children want to play Candyland. You're not that excited. It was wonderful when you are a kid, but now that you're an adult, you look back and kind of go, eh, doesn't really have any appeal for me. In heaven, we'll look back and go, oh, yeah, we, we got married. <laughs> that was cute, wasn't it? It was wonderful, and yet what God has in store is so much better than what, however great your marriage was or is. That's why 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, No eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, who love him. We can't even imagine how wonderful it will be. And so if you have a wonderful or had a wonderful marriage, know that what God has in store is infinitely better than that. But notice that Jesus added that this is only for those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. And Jesus was not a universalist. He did not think, well, everyone's just going to go there. Now, we briefly noted earlier the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and that parable shows us, well, how do we attain? Well, that parable very clearly shows us it's not by being religious. In fact, being religious can get in the way. It's by humbly admitting you're a sinner, by realizing that it's the sacrifice of the lamb that makes us worthy. We can attain to it because Jesus, the lamb of God, attained it for us. And so Jesus continues in verse 37, boldly asserting that the resurrection of the dead will happen. And he explains this by showing the passage of Moses in the bush. Now Jesus said the passage of Moses in the bush because there were no chapter and verses in the Bible until A.D. 1227 when Bishop Stephen Langton put them in. And so Jesus refers to it. And the point is that when God appeared to Moses, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, or I had been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as though they're past tense, they're done, they're over. No, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they are still alive. Death does not have the final word. It is the final word for this age, but then we'll be resurrected to everlasting life or everlasting 
death, reward or punishment. And so they are again left silent. Except you may have noticed there's one group who's cheering, the scribes, the haters of the Sadducees. are like, oh, good answer, Jesus. We like that one. Um, let them know that they're wrong. We always like it when our opponents get corrected. And yet, even they have nothing else they can say. And so here, Jesus is going through this final week fully in control. One wiser than Solomon is here. You're God's own son who fully imaged forth God. He came on a seek and destroy mission, but not to seek and destroy us, to seek and destroy sin, death, and the devil. He came to give us life, to give us hope. You see, the Sadducees, they placed their hope in maintaining the status quo. Don't rock the boat. Keep the Romans in control. We stay wealthy. We keep our position. That's our hope. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they put their hope in, be a good religious person. Do what you're supposed to do. And then we get to be with God. And Jesus shows our greatest hope is not of anything in this earth, but in him. Now having that hope does not remove all sorrow. It doesn't end all pain. However, it gives us a firm foundation for when we go through the storm. Yesterday I came across this quote. If you have health, you have hope. If you have hope, you have everything. Well, that's a very depressing statement for many people. I doubt we could go up to United Regional and see that emblazoned on any wall. Why? Well, because then they would be saying, without health, you're hopeless. But there is a hope that exists in the midst of sickness, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of relational fallout. And if you have that hope, it can guide you through the tragedies of life. I'm not sure if you've heard of Ian and Larissa Murphy, but they beautifully portrayed this. In 2005, they met in college, they fell in love, and they began talking about getting married. Ian started looking a ring, and they started talking about their future, what it would look like, having children, getting together with friends, growing old together. And then Ian had a tragic car accident. He needed immediate brain surgery emergency brain surgery, and it left him needing constant care, a wheelchair, and even fears that food could choke him and kill him. And so Larissa, she moved in with the family because he needed constant care, and Ian slowly began to improve, but not fully. He was still unable to walk, but he could communicate in some way. He still needed constant care, but his life was not in immediate danger. And Larissa knew, look, Ian would never have left me. We were committed to get married. It was going to be through sickness and health. And so they still got married. At their wedding, they had the pastor read these words from John Piper's book, This Momentary Marriage. It says, marriage is not mainly about prospering economically. It's mainly about displaying the covenant-keeping love of Christ and his church. Knowing Christ is more important than making a living. Treasuring Christ is more important than bearing children. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days, or it may be covered in clouds. But if we set our face to make of marriage what God designed it to be, no sorrows or calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will not be an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. 
And you might be thinking, well, how in the world could she still marry this guy who's basically stuck, who can barely communicate? Why would she do that? Well, because she has a hope that is beyond a marriage on this earth. She has hope in a marriage that's not momentary, but is eternal. And so we can vow to one another to be faithful in sickness and health, in richer or poor, because our hope is not tied to this earth. Our hope is tied to the one who rose again, who is going to give us something way better than any marriage this earth could provide. Do you have that hope? Or is your hope tied to things on earth that can be ripped away, that can end? You know, Jesus is calling us here. He's showing us, look, if you have allegiance to God, if you put your hope in him, there's hope even in the midst of trial. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our hope often does get tugged, pulled, get seduced to what is here on earth. Lord, you have given us many great joys. You've given us friends. You've given us marriage. You've given us a church. And each of them has great joy in it. And yet, Lord, we know each of those is just a small glimpse of what you have prepared for us eternally. Lord, may we not cling to this, but long for the day when we shall be united with you forever. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.